Welcome to the inaugural episode of Reactionary Minds, a podcast from the Unpopulist. I'm your host, Aaron Ross Powell. Reactionary Minds is a show about why some people reject liberalism and what the rest of us can do about it. This first episode is all about introducing the problem Reactionary Minds exists to address. What is a liberalism? Why is it on the rise? And why should we be concerned about it? My guest today is Sheikha Dalmia, editor of the Unpopulist Newsletter and fellow at the Mercatus Center's Program on Pluralism and Civil Exchange. Welcome to the show, Sheikha. Thanks for having me, Erin. What is populism? It's a good question. And as you noticed, the name of my newsletter is The Unpopulist. And the newsletter is largely an effort to address the authoritarian currents we are seeing around the world. So then the question arises, why am I, am I calling it the unpopulist and not the anti-authoritarian or something like that? And partly because it's cuter. But the more serious reason is that the kind of illiberalism and the kind of authoritarianism we are seeing around the world is has what is essentially a populist element. And now there's a lot of confusion around the word populism. And there is actually a great deal of effort on the left to try and take back this word, which they think has been unfairly characterized in the last six years with the rise of the Trump era and, uh, you know, the MAGA era. And, you know, so I actually in some ways feel for some of the left-wing writers like Thomas Frank, who's a public intellectual and an author, and he's something of a Bernie Sanders progressive. And he wrote a book not too long ago defending the term populism because he sees populism as essentially a movement of the people. Roger Cohen, a New York Times columnist, similarly wrote another column, and I think it was like 2018, shortly after Trump, where he also was uh, lamenting the fact that the term populism has acquired this negative connotation. Now, I actually feel for some of these liberals because, you know, as you and I know, we are still grieving the loss of the term liberal. However, I think they fundamentally misunderstand what populism really means and why it has a bad connotation. To some extent, it's a semantic issue. You can give any phenomenon any name. But populism for the longest time has had a bad odor of it because they see populism as essentially a popular movement that is supposed to do the most good for the most people. And those most people are not the rich people. They are generally, you know, middle income or lower middle income people who are the vast majority of the population. But that's not what populism really is. It's not a popular movement. A populist movement, if you read the literature on it, which admittedly is murky, it's about pitting the real people against some other entity. And that entity is the elites usually. So the elites are considered to be sort of these corrupt oligarchs, and the people are supposed to be these pure, you know, something pure representing something good. And so there is this instantly this division between the elite, which controls the establishment, and the pure people whose interests are being avoided. Now, Even that exactly doesn't capture the problem with the term populism. The term populism gets its bad odor from the fact that it's not just that 
the real people are trying to get their way and have their their preferred policies enacted. It is more that they want to flatten certain elements of liberalism, the deliberative process, the representative process, because they believe it's been captured by some bad people, by the establishment, which is not representing them. And so it's an effort to flatten certain institutions of liberalism, not improve them, not reform them, but simply to either sidestep them or do an end run around them or even just get rid of them so that the real people can have their will. Now, Obviously, this can't have the real people can't govern. There are too many of them. Somebody has to govern for them. So in some senses, the term, you know, populist and authoritarian seem like they are antipoles. But actually, they come together because always, inevitably, when you have a populist movement, some authoritarian figure, some demagogue arises who will say he represents the people. And he will usually... It could be a he. Very occasionally, there have been some she's. He or she will say they are representing the people. But very often, and this, you know, we saw very clearly with Trump, we the people became me the people. So they are not representing the people. They are the people. So populism inevitably goes hand in hand with a certain kind of authoritarianism. And so therefore, the term unpopulist and therefore why populism is something to be worried about. I think that's one of the interesting things about watching the rise of populism in the U.S. over the last five or six or seven years has been that it is – it's framed as an anti-elite movement and draining the swamp is an anti-elite thing and we're constantly hearing about these coastal cities with these out-of-touch elites who don't understand the real people, which real Americans in this context inevitably just means rural, working-class whites – but then the leadership is a fantastically wealthy, though we don't know quite how wealthy because his finances are a little sketchy, but fantastically wealthy businessman. And then in in Congress, the figureheads for it, or at least people trying to claim that mantle, tend to be Ivy League law school educated pretenders to the common man identity. And it is – you're right. It is this this odd thing where what – begins as a movement framing itself as of the people turns into in practice effectively a personality cult that's no longer about the people but it's or it's no longer about the people's identity it's about the people building their identity through fealty to this strong man leader which is then how it can very quickly turn into an authoritarian movement because either that leader's power when he has to do something is seen as absolute because he's the embodiment of our hopes and dreams and cultural identity or when that leader's position is threatened, as we saw when Trump lost the election, it can morph quickly into violence in defense of that leader's status, not so much the working class or the common man's status, but but defending that leader from from perceived failure. That's right. And there is actually, you know, now populism can be of both the left wing and the right wing varieties. And we have seen them, you know, throughout history. I mean, Latin America has had a populism of every strain. And in every instance, it has led to the cult of the personality. But there are two things in populism. So there is a cult of personality, which is the leader. And then there is a cult of the people, too. There is a certain deification of the people that they are the true owners of 
the society. You know, their will needs to be respected. And so the two, the cult of the leader and the cult of the people sort of build on each other. They both deify each other. And, you know, whether it is Hugo Chavez, whether it is Bolsonaro right now, although Bolsonaro is interesting and he's losing some of his popularity. But Trump is a classic phenomenon of a cult leader, of a demagogue who is... Uh, leading in the name of the real people, and then the real people deify him. And he really was a deity in certain MAGA circles. And he, in turn, deifies them in his rallies. I mean, if you watched some of his rallies, which I tried to avoid as much as possible. But, you know, he he was constantly flattering the people there. You know, it was, you people are great, and you are being ignored. And so, yes, so there is this sort of the mutual cult of the leader and the cult of the people that goes hand in hand in a, you know, populist movement. I want to stay for a moment on our terms and taxonomies, because the the purpose of this show ultimately is is not just to critique illiberal and populist ideas, but to, to try to understand them, to try to understand where these people are coming from, what the, the philosophies and personality traits and historical perspectives that inform them because it's, it's hard to challenge ideas without understanding them deeply and to the extent you can fairly. So we talked about what populism is, but this show is not called The Authoritarian Mind. It's not called The Populist Mind. It is called Reactionary Minds. And so where does the term reactionary fit into all this? So, Erin, this is your show. So, <laughs> you know, you and I both talked about why we like reactionary minds. And I, you know, I'll give you my side of why I like it. And I, you know, perhaps you can say something about why you like it. So, you know, the textbook definition of reactionary is a person or a sensibility that is opposed to economic or political liberalization of any kind. And so usually it goes along with a certain conservative mentality. But I think there's another element to the reactionary sensibility, and that is it is also sort of anti-ideas and it's anti-intellectual. And the reason is ideas and intellectual theories then can lead to change. They can lead to, you know, certain, you know, it re they require a certain amount of openness to the world and to knowledge, and those can be intensely threatening to existing cultural orders, right? And so in that sense, reactionary minds, I think, is a good way to describe this show. Because as I, you know, you and I are both, as we know, quite troubled and perturbed by the last six years. I mean, things are happening in America that we never thought would be possible. And we think that there needs to be some kind of a response to this, right? But we can't really fight these ideologies unless we understand them. And so we do want to understand the reactionary movement that's brewing in America on its own terms. And so that's sort of the reason I like the term reactionary minds. Yeah, I agree with all that. And the only what I would add is I think that you can make the case that ideology, political ideology, moral ideology, and so on, is to some extent downstream of personality, that, that we tend to have different personal and personality preferences and then we sometimes look around for theories or intellectual edifices that provide structure to them or support them or don't really challenge them. And in that regard, I think reactionary is also a – it is a 
personality type that that says I am turned off by, sometimes threatened by diversity, by change, by things being different than the way that I'm used to or people who aren't like me being more prominent than they used to be or higher status than they used to be or the the way we talk about language is changing and that bugs me and I don't like these kids with their you know asking me to use different pronouns or different terminology like there's there is this set in my waysness that drives a lot of this and it's not it's not an accident that Trump his he led with when he was first running for president he led with anti-immigration with a, a xenophobic perspective and a, and a nationalism that was the corollary of that because for a lot of his most faithful followers, it's America is looking different than either the way I was used to it being or the way that I imagined it being or the way that I would like it to look. Demographic, you know, on the far fringes of the populace, we get great replacement theory about they're trying to change the demographics of the country to make it less white than it used to be. There is there is this very, I don't like difference and that's and then reacting strongly against that. And then that feeds into political preferences, which is I'm going to vote for the person who will stop the change, whether that's preventing immigrants who don't look and talk like me from coming into the country or will elevate the status of the people who have the same preferences I do against the people with the the diverse preferences that I dislike. And that's another thing that I really I want to dig into on this show is is the way that there there is such a thing I think as a populist or an authoritarian or reactionary like psychology as well. So there's ideas that inform it but there's also just beliefs and values and attitudes and they end up mixing together into this this very toxic political outcome but that was that was the attraction to me of the reactionary minds because it gets both the notion that this is an ideological perspective but also that this is just a an attitudinal perspective right that's very well stated Aaron I would however push back just slightly in that you know we do want to make a distinction between the conservative mind and the reactionary mind right I mean Bill Buckley's very famous statement about when he launched the National Review was, you know, he wants to stand athwart history and, you know, screaming or yelling, stop. And, you know, there is a way in which, even though I am not a conservative, never have been, never will be, I can understand the urge to be careful about change and to, you know, reform and to be a little deliberative to, you know, you don't want to simply throw out existing social arrangements just because there is some fad, you know, that has taken hold of the land. So there is a way in which that, you know, conservatives, even though I'm not a conservative, they can be incrementalist, but not completely opposed to reform. Reactionaries, I think, is conservatism on steroids in that sense. You know, reactionaries simply don't want change because they don't like change. And usually, like I said, you know, reactionariness is a phenomenon that's usually associated with conservatism. But to the extent that it's not just any change that reactionaries are opposed to, it's actually liberalism that they are opposed to. It's liberalization they are opposed to. 
to the extent it's liberalization they are opposed to. They can even come from the progressive side, right? Like communists, when China liberalized its economy to some extent, there were reactionaries in China, you know, who wanted the communist order to hold and they didn't want liberalization. So in that sense, you know, I like the term reactionary because potentially it will even capture the leftist reactionary. And I think that often manifests in the contemporary American left as an intolerance of difference that is – it's not the same as the intolerance of difference that we see from the right, which is obviously very much there. But rather, we being the – like the left thinks we have we have advanced, we have liberalized. So certain behaviors that used to be socially unacceptable are now considered normal. Or certain underprivileged groups that used to be underprivileged are now considered no different than than everyone else. And that liberalization is good. That's the kind of liberalization we want. But there is a tendency among some people on the left to then be incredibly intolerant, not of difference in the political realm. So not of like it's it's one thing to say, like, yes, we should people who want to recriminalize gay marriage or or gay relationships that's that's bad but it's people who themselves in their own lives are not affirmatively supportive of these things need to be stamped out need to be punished and you know so this this often can manifest in the left's wanting to punish businesses that weren't supportive of gay weddings baking cakes for gay weddings you know the small conservative baker says, that's against my conscience. I don't want to bake a cake for your wedding. In a genuinely liberal society, the answer to that is, okay, like I will go I will go somewhere else and get a cake from somewhere else and like kind of no harm, no foul. But the liberalism that manifests on the left is like, no, it's not enough that you are just saying, hey, I don't want to participate. You have to participate and embrace or we are going to in this case, like try to use the state to punish you, to destroy your business, to fine you, to drive you out because you're not one of us. And that ends up with this this like ratcheting up of the reactionariness because then what that says to the people who are more culturally conservative is I need to dig in even deeper because if the culture drifts in a more liberal direction, that's even more grounds for me to be punished often with state force. And so I need to fight even harder because I won't be tolerated. Right. You know, that's exactly the dynamic we are in right now. The problem with the left is that it's too impatient. And to some extent, one can understand its impatience, right? I mean, I think systemic injustices are prevalent. Systemic racism is a thing. And we all do need to, you know, grapple with legacies of slavery, Jim Crow. All of that is correct. The problem with the left is it doesn't want to do the real hard work of changing hearts and minds. It wants to grab power nodes and exercise and, you know, push on them to engineer change. And it's not just the state that, you know, that they are the levers of the state that they are using. It's also the levers of, you know, corporate power and, you know, what have you. Not all of them are illicit. Some of them are perfectly acceptable. I mean, certain kinds of boycotts against clearly beyond the pale views is probably acceptable. But they have lost the capacity, you know, of making distinctions between 
you know, good-natured fear of what they are asking for and, you know, and a reactionary fear, I guess. And it's like this lack of calibration and this lack of finesse in their techniques, which is, I think, you know, which is a big problem, which is in some ways driving, a, you know, more reactionary attitude on the part of the conservatives, bringing out their worst tendencies. But I actually don't want to simply blame the left for it also. I mean, I think... The conservatives always wanted a certain kind of conservative mind that was always uncomfortable with certain social changes, you know, gay marriage or what have you. They've also been looking for a pretext to dig in. So I think to some extent, you know, the left is giving them a pretext. It's not a reason. It's a pretext for, you know, their reactionariness. It's hard to untangle all of this, I admit. But they all these currents are right now with us. But at their core, they're all ultimately a rejection of genuine liberalism, which is, if nothing else, it is a, a belief in a social tolerance and social pluralism of if we're going to live together in a big society, commonly governed, we have to get along with each other. And the way that you get along with each other, given our diversity of viewpoints and values and preferences and backgrounds and so on, is to tolerate differences, to say, I'm going to let you live the way that you want to live and I'm going to live the way that I want to live. And even if I'm not celebrating the choices that you make, I'm accepting them as part of this liberal consensus. But so much of what we're seeing now seems to be a rejection of that liberal consensus of saying, no, it's not just that I think I am right in – all of us think we're right in our own preferences and values or we wouldn't hold them. So it's not just that. It's saying – Therefore, anyone who differs from my preferences and values is wrong and is wrong to an extent that they are dangerous or a threat or impure or in some other way need to be, whether it's with the state or other mechanisms, need to be shut down, excluded, punished so that we can have a higher degree of uniformity that happens to align with with my preferences. Right. Uh, I think uh, somebody said, you know, Obama, when he became president, he was against gay marriage. He was, you know, against all kinds of pro-gay policies. And then, of course, during the course of his presidency, you know, he changed his mind and pushed all kinds of gay issues. So, you know, I wonder if there is any room for Obama in the current left, right? I mean, that evolution of thinking. I mean, now I think Obama was always there and, you know, he was holding back for strategic reasons, which turned out to actually be, you know, not bad reasons. But right, I mean, and it's not, and the, you know, and you can see the growing intolerance of the left in that it's not just being censorious against the right, but it's also being censorious on its own, you know, to its own, which is why, in a way, I'm a little less worried about the left, because the left, you know, in its demand for sort of like sort of purity and consistency, it's in a way, you know, becoming less united and it's sort of <laughs> beginning to is at that stage of devouring its own. And so there are pushback currents. I mean, the left is generating now healthy pushback. I mean, you know, I actually think if uh, Trump had not arrived on the horizon, right, there was so much concern within the left about the left that right now we would be in a much better position with respect to the left. 
But with Trump arriving on the scene, I mean, I feel myself pivoting. I mean, I think there is no bigger threat in this country than the right, because it has become so completely not just reactionary, but authoritarian and illiberal in 30 different ways that I've had to drop my attention on the left and now, oh, you know, the right is the big problem. But before Trump arrived, I remember Vox, which is by no means right wing, let alone even a centrist publication, very much a progressive publication. But I recall it had written or it had published a piece by a liberal professor saying, my liberal students terrify me. And it, this piece went on to say that conservative students in his class, this was a professor who's in a liberal arts college, who said the conservative students in his class will push back, might not like his ideas, but are still willing to discuss them. Liberal students were not willing to do that. Now, what you what we are seeing on the other hand is that the right has taken what was, you know, is no longer simply pushing back against what were legitimately called left-wing excesses. It wants to just crush them, right? Now you are seeing bills banning the teaching of critical race theory. That's where the reactionariness comes in, right? This is no longer now about calibrating the pace of the change. It's it's not about that. Now we are only going to impose our vision from like 200 years ago or, you know, whatever, 150 years ago. Now it has taken a completely different, you know, cant and it's in a completely different orbit. We've talked about Trumpism as exemplary of the kind of populism that that we are concerned about. But is Trump the major figure or are who are the other figures that are important to understand when looking at the lay of the land on American populism, left or right, like the main, I guess, influencers, as as the kids say? Well, populism in America, depending upon how you use the term, has a long history. I mean, the first populist movements were, movement was the People's Party in 1890, which was a third party. And uh, it was this uh, agrarian movement and labor movement against the industrialization that was happening, the building of the railroads. Lots of people were dispossessed. Life, you know, traditional livelihoods were lost. That is generally regarded as the first populist movement in this country. It got co-opted by the Democratic Party, which became became the Labor Union Party. It actually, uh, the People's Party put its lot behind William Bryan Jennings. And when he lost the election that year, it kind of like spelled the end of that party, but it got co-opted by Democrats, right? Now it's a completely different situation. I mean, you've seen certain other populist movements. I mean, arguably, you know, well, the George Wallace, he was a populist phenomenon, very much appealing to the same kinds of anxieties that Trump now appealed to. In between, you had sort of like the Tea Party movement. You also had the Occupy Wall Street movement. The difference is that the, the Tea Party, I think, was the beginning of this turn towards Magaism. Although, interestingly, tea, the Tea Party movement was very much, you know, pitching itself as this sort of this constitutional movement. It wanted to return to the founders. It wanted to limit the scope of the government, all of which went out of the window when Trump came along. But I think, you know, Trump is not sui generis. I mean, partly the Tea Party is behind that. But partly, I think, you know, we had the phenomenon of right-wing radio with the advent of 
Rush Limbaugh, who started pushing all kinds of populist tropes, right? I mean, he was a nativist. He was, you know, anti-left. I mean, the preoccupation with the leftist enemy is a huge, huge part of the right right now. I mean, I think that's the single biggest motivating force. I think even the anti-immigration and the anti-immigrant animus is not quite as powerful a force as the, you know, as the fear and the anger and with the left is. Hatred of the left, actually. And I think uh, Rush Limbaugh started stoking that. And then you had like a whole slew of copycats on the right. And I think that kind of paved the way for Trump. You know, the right was kind of like primed for a populist takeover. And then Trump came along with his MAGA message. And at that stage, all the right wanted was to use the levers of the state to smash the left and impose its vision of, you know, a pretty sort of insular, insulated, closed American, you know, polity. And this, I mean, this isn't new, even even with Trump, even with Rush Limbaugh. I mean, this is what we watched in the 50s and 60s with anti-communism was the Soviet Union was a legitimate threat, although maybe you know, in retrospect, not as big as of a threat as we thought it were at the time. There were communists in the country, although it's, America was not going to turn. They weren't going to win out. America was not going to turn communist, but they did exist, and communism was very bad. But the American right used that as a way to exert the the power of the federal government to punish particularly culturally left people or people who were calling for liberalization of the positions of blacks or gays or women and so on, um, that there's this this urge to define an enemy and then use a potentially like an inflated threat of that enemy or mischaracterizations of that enemy or straw man versions of that enemy to have this – to justify a, a reactionary turn is – is very strong and it makes me think it was interesting a moment ago we were talking about Trump and how there was this you said like had Trump not come along the left would have fractured more than it did and so what's interesting about Trump is that he unified both the right and the left into these these deeply tribally opposed camps that there were i mean for for decades, the conservative movement was split between there was there was the base that looked very much like Trumpism does now and has, you know, that that conservative kind of right reactionary base has been around as long as there has been a a right. But you had the elites, the Bill Buckley types or the Ronald Reagan or then the Paul Ryan who who managed to kind of have control of the GOP and push it in a more if not liberal, at least more liberal adjacent on its best days direction. But that went away with Trump and suddenly the elites all kind of either swore fealty or at least shut up about their criticisms of of the really reactionary right. And then on the left, you had exactly that, that the left, those fault lines went away because we had a, a unified enemy. Trump won't be around forever. Um, and so it does. There's there's a sense in which that that kind of potentially gives a way out of when that enemy has has gone away. I mean, there are other people like what DeSantis is doing in um, in Florida right now. He's clearly trying to tee himself up as the inheritor of the the Trump mantle. 
But it's questionable whether any of the people trying to do that have Trump's, I don't want to call it charisma, but a lot of people think of it as such, but like Trump's showmanship <laughs> and, you know, like he, there is something about him and his celebrity and all of that that made him successful in the way that someone who had just spouted the same views probably would not have been. I guess, is is there cause for hope there that if the if the populist leader goes away, then the sides will become more pluralistic than they are now? It's a good question. No, I'm actually not optimistic about that. I mean, look, what Trump did was he didn't really unite the Republican Party, right? I mean, he what he did was he united a certain element within the Republican Party and the rest of those who didn't agree with him were either purge. I mean, Paul Ryan didn't last a year after Trump came on the scene, right? And the others were have been you know, they are persona non grata within the party. And that's actually a classic populist move. I mean, it's not just that they don't respect parliamentary institutions and they don't respect the opposition. They actually turn their own party in an embodiment into themselves. And you've seen that with Trump. I mean, it's literally classical, classic populism. So in that sense, you know, I think he's been hugely damaging to the Republican Party. And I'm in a way that I'm not sure the Republican Party can recover from it from a very for a very long time. Or at least I think it has to be in the political wilderness for a very long time. I, it has to be punished at the polls repeatedly before it will give up this populist formula. So that's in one sense, I think. So even though there may not be a charismatic figure, and the reason I was laughing when you, you know, said charismatic, because I know to you and me, he's just so utterly not charismatic <laughs> that it's hard for us to see his appeal. You know, but there'll be other populists who will try and copy him, right? And they may not be successful, but their very presence is going to be damaging. That's one. But the more, you know, the the bigger danger of Trump is not Trump, but Trumpism. And Trumpism is essentially, you know, an illiberal mindset that doesn't respect the checks on executive power. And it gives various factions within the conservative right, therefore, the, the sort of like the permission to use the levers of the state to prom promote their own vision. So you've written about this, sort of the integralist movement, right? Why is that emerging now? Uh, the Nat NatCon National Conservative Movement. Why is that emerging now? He's actually fractured, you know, whatever little uneasy fusion consensus there was in the right and allowed these illiberal, you know, monster children of Magaism now to, you know, to assert themselves. So I actually think things are going to get much worse before they get better. Well, let's turn briefly to the integralist movement and the national conservatism movement, which have some overlap but are distinct in other ways, because they represent an interesting move on the part of the conservative elite to try to take on the energy of, of Trumpism, of Trumpist populism, but intellectualize it to – because Trumpism is basically all id there's not there's not a like an intellectual philosophical through line there but the national conservatives and the integralists are saying no there is a a philosophical case against liberalism that liberalism has has failed for reasons failed in their words for reasons inherent to it and and that we need to 
embrace non-liberal, like well thought out philosophical positions. Because that's that's the thing is if Trump is just spouting id, the integralists and the national conservatives have legitimately thoughtful and often interesting thinkers articulating these views in ways that are – I think they're wrong and I think they're often dangerously wrong. But they're not stupid and they're worth wrestling with. But it is interesting watching these these very elites. I mean these are law professors and philosophy professors and theologians trying to take this energy and give it – like reapply the, the intellectual veneer that used to exist with Buckley in the National Review but was was shed under Trump to reapply that intellectual veneer. Right. I mean, the difference between Buckley and the Vermeules of the day is that Buckley was still trying to promote a certain kind of conservatism with a broadly liberal framework and a broadly liberal understanding. You know, he agreed that checks and balances were a good thing. Checks on executive power were a good thing. All of that is now out of the window, right, with these new movements. You know, I think these the discontents with liberalism are always there because liberalism is an uneasy equilibrium between all kinds of different interests that don't comfortably fit together, right? So liberals, minorities are not happy with liberalism because liberalism doesn't give them the levers of power to instantly correct all the injustices against them. So they are always unhappy. And of course, the majority is unhappy because especially in a you know liberal democratic society, if it were to, you know, if pure majoritarian rule were to exist, it would get its way far more frequently. You know, so everybody is always unhappy with liberalism, but there has always been this understanding that, you know, life on the other side of liberalism is nasty, brutish and short. So we better just stick with liberalism. And that kind of like consensus, you know, that liberalism may be wanting, but, you know, there is no other real alternative. That understanding is completely gone because some people have come to believe, thanks to sort of like Trump's assault on liberalism, that they can have the whole cake, right? The integralists, you know, and you've written great stuff about this. I mean, they've written, you know, they believe that, you know, and integralists, as you've pointed out, are like a really weird movement because they are Catholics. They are a, actually a minority. And integralists within Catholicism are a really small minority. So why? Why would you want to give up liberalism? And the answer is that they think that any conservative state will give them more of what they want than they'll get from a liberal state. Ultimately, that's like, you know, any like even a reactionary like Trump will give them more than, you know, any anybody else will. And so, you know, and hence they have turned on liberalism because they just feel they are getting less out of it. And and every faction within conservatism, I think, is making a similar bet. So you have, uh, you know, national conservatism, which is a very, very diverse movement. I mean, you have your Ram Hazoni, who's an Israeli intellectual, who's the godfather of this movement, weirdly enough. You know, you just have just standard nationalists who just feel like there should be more flag waving in the United States. You have somebody like Rich Lowry, who was actually a never Trumper and now feels that, you know, America needs there needs to be some kind of America firstism in America. 
and he is flirting with uh, something of a blood and soil kind of what he calls this nationalism based on geography and ancestry and you know that will rule me out as an american you know as a robust american citizen i'm not sure about you but geography it means like you know americans need to love the landscape of this country you know the shenandoah valley is something that every american should do a pilgrimage to i mean it's all just goofy stuff but they all feel like whatever was missing in the you know in the sort of the liberal arrangement in america now they feel it's up for grabs and they're all trying to make a bid for it very quickly to get what they can in the time that we have left i want to turn to the future of this podcast, as I said, this is, this is the inaugural episode of Reactionary Minds. We plan to do a lot more of these. So our goals, why why we created this show and what we're hoping to get out of it, and I guess I can, I can start on this one. Uh, I touched on this a bit earlier, but I think my goal is this, this rise of a liberalism is, is really troubling as someone who has – dedicated his career to advancing a quite radical conception of individual and economic liberty and individual autonomy and self-authorship. This is a direct assault on the values that not only I hold, but I think the ones that lead to the best world for everyone. And yeah, this has always been with us, but it has ramped up considerably. We're we're seeing some of it on the left. We are seeing one of the two major parties more or less entirely overtaken by it. We have seen it embodied in a president. We are seeing an increasing number of intellectuals come out in support of it in one form or another. Like this is a real threat. And I think the value of a show like this is in trying to understand where that's all coming from and and what it is that people who hold these views actually want why they want it, what are the ideas that are leading them to it or providing support for it. And not just in a – I don't want this to be like a superficial understanding or a dismissive or they're all just evil kind of way because that's that's easy and ultimately uninteresting. Um, like my goal is to just really try to understand them on – their own terms, and then and then to critique it from the perspective of of the value of radical liberty. That's exactly right, Aaron, and that's why I'm so excited that you know you are doing this. I think this is going to be a great podcast. As you've said, you know, plan is to understand this sort of illiberalism and its appeal at every level. Uh, psychological, social, political. So, you know, I'm sure you'll be having guests that address all of it. In from my mind, you know, you and I, I think we both have sort of more of pensions for intellect, you know, intellectual understanding of things, right? And, you know, Marxism has this distinction between theory and praxis. And so we like to understand things at a theoretical level. It's like it's almost an end in itself. But I think in this case, we cannot find a, we we cannot fight illiberalism without actually understanding it. We know what we are opposing, and so so there is that. And I think in addition to sort of this theory praxis thing, I mean this part. You know, this is part of like the bigger unpopulist endeavor, right? And the unpopulist endeavor will be, you know, it's also got its theoretical side, but it's not going to shy away from like taking sides. 
it's not going to shy away from calling the, you know, the right reactionary and taking on specific figures, political figures who are behaving in an illiberal fashion. So to me, this is going to sort of in some ways, the theory of reactionary minds is going to inform the praxis of unpopulist. And so there is sort of a yin and yang over here, which I'm super excited about. I really look forward to this. Thank you for listening to Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. If you want to learn more about the rise of a liberalism and the need to defend a free society, check out theunpopulist.substack.com. Thank you.